Coming up next, a special edition of The Bear on KCRW Berlin, brought to you in cooperation with the Goethe Institute in Washington, D.C. This month's show is all about mistakes and the lessons we learn from making them. Your front row seat to an evening of great storytelling is up next. Stay tuned. I don't actually believe in the concept of mistakes anymore because I I really do think that at any moment we're always doing the very best that we can. So in any moment, if the results aren't what we want, then it was a learning opportunity. At the moment when you're doing that mistake, it's a failure. Your life will be like crumbling down. But after you do that, you can start to think, you know, more wisely. Mm-hmm. But when, when it happens, like, it is a failure. In Berlin for the Goethe Institute, I'm Sylvia Cunningham. Today, we are talking about mistakes, the kinds of mistakes that you don't forget. When we were talking about, you know, what are bad mistakes, I actually had a, a moment where I thought, I, I can't think of anything, which my... my my daughter said, Mom, what's the topic again? And I said, it's a bad mistake. She goes, I'm sure you've got this covered. <laughs> yeah, that made me wonder. <laughs> One evening this past June, a group of storytellers met on stage in the German capital for a special edition of The Bear Storytelling, a monthly event where Berliners share true personal stories centered around a certain theme. The theme of that evening was, bad mistakes make good stories. I mean, you don't want to make bad mistakes on purpose just to have a good story. Not that I haven't done that before, like, okay, I know this is going bad, uh, but I'll get a good story out of it. On today's show, five stories out of Berlin. A woman who plots a great escape on the eve of her sister's wedding. Another who reflects on an old passion while discovering a new one. A man who finds himself in uncharted waters when he buys his first pets a storyteller who thinks back to her mom's words of wisdom, and a woman who plays with fire. Several of the storytellers you'll hear joined me in our Berlin studio after the live performance, so stay tuned for those conversations. Throughout the show, you'll hear original music from cellist Eli Chester. Storyteller Galu Roma sets the stage for us. Galu grew up in a small village in Indonesia and has been living in Berlin for about five years. Her story is called... When I grow up. When I was six, I had a big fight with my nine years old, super intelligent and wise sister because she didn't allow me to be a dragon ball when I grow up. For you who are not familiar with Japanese anime, Dragon Ball is a anime series about a boy from very small village who explored the world to find seven orbs and he fought along the way so he could make a wish. I don't know if it's worth it, but... So I cried that day and I knew that my sister didn't like seeing me crying and she just, yeah, do whatever you want. So I wrote on my diary book at that time that when I grow up, I want to be a strong, muscular dragon ball. Fast forward 11 years later, in the evening before my sister's wedding, 
I look into her eyes and I ask her, do you want to run away? And she said, if I ran away right now with you, I would kill grandmother from her attack. I would kill father from high blood pressure. I would kill mother from depression because she lost two daughters. And I would kill you because you eat a lot and we will starve in the street, <laughs> which is true. So the next day, she married the guy that she barely knew and she didn't really like because it was arranged wedding from my parents and from his parents because he's richer than us. And just like that, this guy came into our family as a stranger and be with my sister. But the night after the wedding, I kidnapped my sister. I hide her under the blanket, under my blanket, under my single bed, and I hold her hand, and I, without saying anything, I really wish I begged my sister asking for my help. But she didn't. And this time I tell her, let's just run away. And this time without smile, without even any emotion, she just said to me, maybe you think I'm making a big mistake right now, which I am, but when you grow up, you will understand. At the time, I was so confused with what she meant with when I grow up, I will understand because I was 17 and she was 19. But before I could ask this question, my, my door was just smashed open. My dad just came to my room and screamed to my sister, you're such a disrespectful and disgraced daughter. How could you let your husband wait for you in your room on the first night? And you? He looked at me. If you're jealous because your sister wedding tomorrow morning, I will marry you with anyone I see in the street. And he left. I didn't care about what my dad said. But when I saw it was just my sister left my room. And before she closed my door, she told me, just get some sleep. I tried. Then night I tried so hard to just close my eyes, but whenever I close my eyes, I hear the voice from myself screaming to me, saying that my sister was getting raped in the next door. My whole life, my sister was the person who always tried to protect me and defend my rebellious ass in front of my parents and will kick anyone else who tried to hurt me. At, the, at that night, I know she hurt so bad and all I could do was just lying on the bed, did nothing. It was so hurtful that night for me that you know this, like, you feel so painful that you couldn't even swallow anything. I felt physically hurtful that night, the whole night. I only able to just cry and cry until Indiana just laughed for nothing. Around 5 a.m., my door was barely open and someone just creeping and lie behind me and I know it was my sister. I just pretend to sleep. I didn't know what to say, so we didn't speak. And then she sobbed and she cried behind my back. I didn't know at that time if she knew that I pretend to sleep or she just spoke out loud. She told me, did you remember when you were six years old and you wanted to be a strong dragon ball? Well, you have to. You got to get out from here. You have to make your own way. You have to fight. You have to make it and you will make it. That night, I was so angry to everyone, to everything. And the anger has shaped my life. 
it gives me courage to explore, to dream things that I wouldn't think I deserve, like getting a master's degree or standing on the stage right now in the city that I would never dream. It was such a painful reminder that people like me or my sister who came from very small village in the middle of nowhere or was raised in a, such a particular culture, we don't have a privilege to just work because just work is not enough. I had to work so hard to just be able to make my own decision for my own life. End of last year, on my sister's second wedding, this time with a guy that she likes and she knew, we talked about that night and she held my hand the way that I hold her hand that night. And she looked at me so proudly and she said, well, look at you now. You break the poverty chain, you break the wall, you won the fight, you made it, you found yourself. Shaking my head, I said, no, you didn't realize, don't you? This whole time, you are the one who tried to save each of our family while trying to save your own self and you made it out alive and still smiling like this. Between us, you're always be the strong Dragon Ball one since day one. She laughed and then she asked me a question. So, if you could turn back the time, will you still ask me to run away? I said, definitely, thank you. That was Berlin storyteller Galu Roma. Galu joined me in the studio after her performance on stage at the Bear Live event. We talked about how that moment, watching her sister make what she believed to be a huge mistake, was a catalyst that set Galu on a whole new path. So a week after my sister's wedding, I just left my home, packed all I have, which was only like one backpack. Um, and I just left to a small city uh, four hours from my village. And it was when I was in the bus with my ba one backpack and rice cooker on my lap because it was the most important thing that my parents thought I need to have. Um, and of course, there some rice from my father's rice farm. Um, that was the, the moment that I really feel the breeze of freedom first time in my life, that I can be whatever I want to be, that I can dream of something and I can achieve it. And yeah, that was, I think, the most um, pivotal point in my life um, in that bus going to the small city. One moment that really stuck out to me in the story was when your sister tells you back when um, after the night of her wedding, she says, maybe you think I'm making a big mistake, but when you grow up, you'll understand. So looking back, what do you understand now from that from that moment? I think that what my sister want, to, want me to understand is that our parents was really into the, the image of, of our family. Like it's very important for them that, you know, our family was uh, looking at like the role model of uh, in the village and stuff. And they want to really keep it that way. And my sister knows that I will not be that kind of girl who know, you know, and she, she always know that I'm kind of like the rebellious one. And she won that at least one of us, that at least my family can still, you know, be proud as someone and they can still have this image through my sister 
and then I can do whatever I want. And she kind of like sacrificed herself to to be this this one that that my family can be proud of, can tell their friends and etc. Because if she didn't do that, then they will also come after me as well. Does your sister know that you reflect back on this story? She always knows because I always talk about it. And whenever my, my family, for example, like asking me about uh, when will you get married and etc. And I always come back to that topic like you you guys really didn't learn from your mistake. Look at look at her, you know, like she need to get divorced in the age of 22, but all by herself and etc. So and they always kind of like, you know, <laughs> didn't say anything other than like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> um, so I always reflect in that and. My sister know that I was one of the people who kind of like get very hurt by the event because I I always try to protect my sister and we kind of try to protect each other, and I I always tell every day before the the wedding to my parents that don't do that like really don't do that she she doesn't she doesn't want to do that and she doesn't like him and etc. So I also try my best, but I failed. Galu usually tries to make it home to Indonesia to see her family once a year. But due to the pandemic, she's not sure when she'll get there next. But one thing she does know, next time she goes, it will be as an aunt, as her older sister is now pregnant with her first child. Next on the show, you'll hear Annie Voigt. Her story is called, What If? the threshold of my door. I just got back from a long, crappy run. I only started running three months ago, and I mean from now on. Um, And the only reason why I started was because I had this weird idea. I wanted to see if I could become a runner. And what the heck was I thinking to start something new that I'm so pathetically bad at, I wheeze, as I'm lying on my stomach in the hallway of my apartment. That's when I hear it. A violin is playing. And I'm suddenly five years old again. Do you want to play an instrument? My mom kneels in front of me in the orange afternoon light. The violin, I say. My mom's face twists in pain, probably as she imagines the hours that she's going to have to spend listening to something that sounds like three cats screeching. How about the piano? She tries to coax me. The violin. I pout, arms crossed. Kids can be so stubborn. Finally, I meet her, my first tiny rental violin. I pull the equally tiny bow carefully across the strings. The instrument makes a quiet, slightly scratchy noise, like the sound of a kitten mewling for the first time. I'm in love. The years blur into one another after that. I play after school. I play on the weekends. I carry my violin all across town from concerts to orchestra practice to violin lessons, back to school, back home again. I practice every day, first half an hour a day, later three hours a day. And I get better and better. And as I do, the drill becomes a little harder, harsher. You're not practicing enough but I'm already playing till my fingers are sore. In order to be the best, you've got to give your best. 
All right, challenge accepted. So I practice harder. Eventually, I get so good that one day, I even perform at the Berlin Philharmonics. But there's something creeping in, a feeling that's not supposed to be there. Well, that was a little disappointing today, wasn't it? I hear, next time try harder. I'm already trying the best I can, but I practice harder and harder till I hate myself for every wrong note I play during a concert. I get off the stage heaving with exhaustion. I just played as a soloist for the first time Vivaldi's The Winter, supported by my own orchestra. That was amazing, I hear. I made a mistake. I shoved the praise away. I'm not good enough. I'll never be good enough. We never have enough information to know which of two roads diverging in a yellow wood we should travel by. We can strain our necks to see as far as we can, but at some point, that road is going to bend in the undergrowth. And we're flying blind, which is what I did. <sighs> when I didn't study to become a professional violinist and instead enrolled in a bachelor's for biochemistry. <laughs> My fingers that at once moved an audience now moved vials of liquid samples from one to the other. If you don't use your talent, you're gonna lose it. I hear from people who knew me back when I played. That's impossible, I reply. I'm a violinist. <laughs> back in the here and now, I'm still lying on the floor, defeated by my after afternoon run. The violin is also still playing. I hadn't picked her up in years. But something in this run had stirred something in me. I go over and I carefully pick her out. I tune her. My fingers move as if encrusted by a thin film of rust. I try to remember the last piece I performed on a stage. I try to remember how to play Vivaldi's The Winter. I can't remember. I can't play. Violin in hand, I sit down on a chair. I think back to what I used to be. I used to be really good. I used to play on the stage of the Berlin Philharmonics. I, I used to be a violinist. Tears are streaming down my face. Am I not a violinist anymore? Did I make a mistake setting you down so I could become a scientist instead? I ask. My violin stares back at me mute. The orange wood glints in the evening sunlight. She's gorgeous, just like the first time. And for the first time in a very long time, I realize that there's no pressure to perform, no expectations to live up to. It's just me and my violin. It feels like a 10-ton weight is lifted off my shoulders. 
I lift up my violin, feel it settle against my neck, and I carefully pull the bow across the string. The instrument makes a quiet, slightly scratchy noise, like the sound of a kitten mewling for the first time. I may no longer be as good as I used to be, but that's not what it's about. It's not about what stage I perform on. It's not about how well I play, just like it's not about how fast or how effortless I run. It's about how much I love what I do. I love being a scientist. I love running. And I still love my violin. And that has made all the difference. It's been a while. That was storyteller and violinist Annie Voigt. Annie is a PhD student at Berlin's Charité, studying learning and memory. Less than two months after Annie told that story, she took off four weeks from work to embark on the most challenging run of her life. It started at the lowest point in Germany, way up north, and will end at the highest, in the Alps mountain range, way down south. Her route is approximately 1,000 kilometers long, that's more than 621 miles. I checked in with Annie in the first week, when she was about a quarter of the way in, and running an average of 40 to 60 kilometers. That's equal to more than a marathon per day. I reminded Annie that at the start of her story, she said she wondered if she could be a runner. Now she says if this doesn't qualify her as one, she doesn't know what will. Up next on the show is storyteller Renko Powell's. His story is called Swimming Upstream in Stagnant Water. When I was three years old, my sister won a goldfish at a carnival. 
She was so excited. She and uh, our mom immediately went out to the store to buy a bowl with like white and blue pebbles, a tiny little castle. They even bought a book to make sure that everything was perfect. They even gave the fish a prominent place in our living room for everyone to marvel at the latest edition of our family. As a toddler, I was mesmerized with the fish. It was gold. It was alive. And it was breathing underwater. A few weeks after, my mom walked into the living room with the fish on the ground and my sleeves soaking wet. This is a fish out of the water story. And this is also the reason why my mom never allowed us to have any more pets. No matter how much my sister and I would be asking for it. Can we have a puppy? No. Can we have a parrot? No. Maybe a pony? Maybe no. And their answer was always the same to justify it. When you're old enough and you can take care of the pet yourself, well, then you can get just one. Uh, but for now, it's a no. And um, we all secretly knew that it was because of the goldfish. But I did what she uh, said we would do. So as soon as I moved into the big city, I grabbed that fishbowl from the attic with its whole sub-aquatic interior and put it up in my tiny studio apartment. I bought two fish. One was elegantly somber. It had black fins like chiffon. I called her Princess Gina, the goth royal of the fishbowl castle. And as a mate, I got a more playful uh, variety. It was gold with silver because, you know, the court needed a jester. I recognized myself in both of my pets. Now, everything went very well. I kept the fish alive. And then it was the Christmas break. I had to go back to my parents and uh, study for my exams. So I didn't know what to do with my pets because I, I had to leave them there for, for two weeks. So I thought, okay, what are my options? And I thought, okay, either I leave them there alone, um, maybe not a good idea. Either I set them free uh, with the hopes that they will survive the freezing cold, or I flush them down the toilet. Luckily, I was a clever student. I picked a fourth option. I thought, you know what? You know what? Maybe I should just take them with me. So I took the fish, put them in a bag, put the bag in a bowl. And when I arrived at the bus stop with the fish bowl, with a gigantic backpack full of clothes and a suitcase heavy, packed with study books. I was just like, am I ready for this two-hour trip? Luckily, the bus driver didn't even look up. Luckily, because I was afraid I had to buy two extra tickets for my pets. I arrived home and my parents were so surprised. Not only because of the fish, but because I was able to keep these ones alive. They were mesmerized uh, that I was actually taking care. And after the Christmas break, we took the whole parade two hours back again into the city. Now, as a student, you have many, many, many holidays, 
many long weekends, many breaks, many... It, I took that monarch and that jester for many, many trips back and forth from the city. I left them with my grandmother. I left them with my uh, neighbor's parents when I was traveling because my parents still refused to take care of her pets. Really, the, they really became like a commuting kingdom. And they were happy just going with the flow. And I became like this weird guy with the fish on the bus. Well, the fishbowl might have been small, but their kingdom stretched afar. And then I got the chance to study abroad. Now, believe me when I tell you that my fish were used to traveling. But they were no frequent flyers. I really had to convince my mother that, well, the life expectancy of the fish really had passed and that I couldn't put them through this whole trip. And I asked them to, for my mother to take care of them. And um, somewhere halfway through my studies in France, uh, I got a call that the fish had become less bubbly and that the jester had had his last laugh. Not long after I got a message that the queen has died. Long live the queen. My heart sank, because I remember now how my parents have felt back then when, uh, yeah, I put the fish on the floor. And I understand now why they never allowed us to have pets anymore. I also understand that fish don't belong in a bowl. They belong on the road. They're nomads, travelers, adventurers. Not globe, globe trotter. They say that fish have a memory of seven seconds, but I will remember those fish forever. That was Renko Pals. Renko is originally from Belgium and has lived in Berlin now for about eight years. As an account executive at a software company, he usually travels a lot for work, but the pandemic has, of course, put that all on hold. So he's spending much more time in Berlin these days, which he says he's enjoying. Renko joined me in the studio to talk about his mistake, which he says started by not listening to his parents. They were right, and they knew they were right, and I kind of have the same mindset of my parents. And they, they were right. It was a mistake to, to get a fish if you travel all the time, if you're never home. If you don't take a pet when you cannot take care of it. That's kind of what they taught me. And they were right. So it was a mistake to get a pet if I wasn't able to take care of it. But I guess I had to learn it the hard way. Well, hard. It was not that dramatic. Yeah. But, I mean... Except for the fish. It was pretty dramatic for the fish, <laughs> I assume. But, um, I mean, you gave those fish a beautiful life, though. I mean, not as beautiful as a fish that could be swimming in a river or in an ocean or wherever goldfish naturally uh, swim. Uh, but it's definitely a better life than on a plate. That's, ooh, oh, we're getting political here. No, I'm joking. Yeah, no, I, I did the best I could. I would never get fish again. Definitely not in an aquarium. Um, I, yeah, I did the best I could. 
Renko told me his brother recently moved out from his family's house, and the first thing he did was get a dog. He says for his parents, it is the same story all over again, just with a different child. Our next storyteller is Alia Sadikapur. Her story is called Kheli Chagshodi, Learning to Accept Well-Roundedness. Came the cackle from my aunties as they're sitting around this intricately woven Persian carpet and picking off cilantro leaves from the stems between their thumb and forefinger. My other aunt, Fahimeh, thought it would be hilarious to chase me around their carpet as she screams, got a mama, got a mama, trying to jiggle all of my chubby parts and my little prepubescent boobs. And then I wake up, and it's Monday morning, and I realize that I'm dreaming about the trauma that I had just experienced at my Bubba's house that same weekend. And now it's time for school. And I'm sitting there in my first period class, and my hands are gripping the edges of the desks and starting to turn white, and I swear that the table and the desk is getting bigger and bigger and bigger and so big that like my 12-year-old arms can't possibly wrap themselves around it as I'm sitting there waiting for my teacher, who will inevitably call my name, to walk up to the board and write a sentence. Contrary to what people may think, uh, English is not my first language, nor was it my favorite subject. <laughs> and of course, it happens. And I pry myself off my seat as there's those really attractive, greasy butt stains from all the sweat, and I slowly clamber up to the board and hold the chalk in my hand as it's shaking, and I start to try and write on the board only to realize that I'm writing down the beats per minute of an EKG machine with the high peaks and low valleys and high peaks and low valleys and high peaks and low valleys, and I keep struggling to try and write something legible as the rest of the class is snickering and mumbling amongst themselves, and my teacher says nothing. And I keep going and going and going, and at some point I just stab a period in the middle of the word, and I sit down. And I bury my head in my elbows. And then it's PE, or physical education. My least favorite period of the day, because that is when my nemesis, Kelly F., Well, that's her favorite period of the day. <laughs> and I'm standing in the locker room and cautiously looking around over my shoulders to see if Kelly F and her goons are there today. And at the second I slowly start to peel off my shirt, I hear it. Ha-ha! Beast from the Middle East is here! Ha-ha-ha! <sighs> I just keep breathing. And I peel off my shirt as her and her goons start making fun of me, saying, ha, 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 look at how fat she is. She's only 12 and she's already got a muffin top. Ha, ha, oh my God. As I peel off my shorts, look at her panties have period stains on them already. That's so disgusting. Oh my gosh. As I slowly try and put my other PE shorts on, oh my gosh, did you see her legs? She doesn't even shave them. Oh my God, she's so hideous and hairy. And then I go out to PE, and we're doing the mile run. And 
I decide to hang back and let the rest of the kids go in without me hoping that maybe I don't have to interact with Kelly F. and her goons again. And sure enough, they wait for me, and they wait for me outside of the locker room after I've gotten dressed and follow me to my next period class as they're constantly kind of poking fun at me from behind. And then the school day's over and I head home. And much later that evening, my mom comes home and I can smell her because at this time my mom would, <laughs> would smoke cigarettes and I could always smell her before I could see her because there would be this waft of cigarette smoke that would come into the house and I knew mom was home. And I tried so hard to stifle my tears because I didn't want her to know that I was upset. But you know what, moms have a really funny way of knowing exactly what's wrong and whether or not their kid is crying. So as much as I'm trying to shove my face into the pillow, which is now seeping wet from my tears, my mom carefully opens the door and pokes her head in. Alls, are you okay? And I can't even say anything. I am just crying so hard that I'm inhaling air just to pour out more tears. And my mom comes in and she sits at the foot of the bed and starts rubbing my back in clockwise motions. And I start explaining, like, Mom, I like the whole weekend I was at Bubba's house and they all made fun of me for being fat. And like, am I really fat? And am I, and then, you know, Kelly F was making fun of me for being hairy. And I'm like, am I really hairy? And am I really fat? And am I really ugly? And is anyone, is ever anyone actually going to like me and love me and think I'm good enough? Because like, even my teacher made fun of me and I don't know what to do and I don't know if I'm good enough. And my mom is just sitting there, still rubbing my back. And after a while, she goes, oh, alls, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if those kids make fun of you. It doesn't matter if your spelling's not perfect. It doesn't matter because you're loved, and that's enough. But the problem is, is as a 12-year-old girl, that's not what you want to hear. <laughs> what you want to hear is not words of wisdom from a parent. What you want to hear is, honey, you're pretty. Honey, you're not fat. Honey, you're not hairy. We can get it removed. Honey, it's fine. That's what you want to hear. And it was a couple of weeks ago where I'm having this conversation with my mom and I bring up this memory again, this memory that had like scarred me for so many years. And I asked her, mom, why didn't you just do the easy thing? Why didn't you just tell me I was pretty? Why didn't you just tell me that I wasn't fat? Why didn't you just do the easy thing? And as she does, oh alls. I didn't want that to be your only feature. I didn't want you to think that that was all you had to offer the world. Because you have so much more to offer than just the way you look. And in that moment, I recognized that what I wanted as a kid is not the same thing as what I actually needed. And as an adult, I know better now. 
Thank you. That was Ali Asada Kapoor, a teacher and writer living in Berlin. Born in the United States, Alia moved to Iran at a very young age, where Farsi became her mother tongue. When her family returned to the U.S. a few years later, she says she initially struggled with her second language, English, in school. But the challenge also fueled her, and it is the subject she teaches today. Though her mother's words may not have been the thing to soothe her at the time, Alia told me the message behind them is what ultimately gave her the strength to be the person she is today— to move across the Atlantic and forge a new path in Berlin, a city she says feels like home more than any other place she's ever lived. Now to our final storyteller on today's show, Denise Banks Grazedick. Her story is called, Is It My Turn? I was really excited when I found out that I was gonna be able to tell a story on the eve of the champs. And then I heard it was about mistakes, and I thought, I have nothing to tell. <laughs> My daughter looked at me and said, Mom, I'm pretty sure you're going you're gonna to figure this one out. <laughs> so I'm, I'm five years old. My cousin John is six. And we are partners. We are partners in crime. We are partners in everything. If I do something, John is there. If John does something, I am there. And this really close connection is going to test my character even before I know what the word character means. So one day we are out and we are in the middle of a Louisiana summer. It's hot, it is dry, and we are playing with matches because what could go wrong? We look out and across from our house is a huge field with very tall, very dry grass. We begin our game, and the game is we light a fire and we take turns putting the fires out. Easy. So we get a little circle of stones and we ball up some candy wrappers, light them, gone. We get some sticks, put them there. Light the fire. It's your turn. Put it out. We take turns, and we do this for a while. And then we find in the garbage an old shoe. It takes forever to light the shoe. And we are, but we're determined. <laughs> so we keep lighting it and lighting it. And finally, it catches. And just about then, a gust of wind comes, and the fire grows immediately. Put out the fire. John, it's your turn. No, it's your turn. You put it out. Put out the fire. It's your turn. And the flames grow and well up, and so do the tears in my eyes. And just then, we decide, we've got to get out of here. We run away, and my father, who is in the kitchen, sees the flames coming up in front of the window. He reaches for the phone, calls the fire department. This is Melvin Banks. We've got a fire at 107 East Ash. The irony of that address, it is true. <laughs> the fire department comes, and what happens in between there is an absolute blur. I don't remember that. What I do remember 
is when all the excitement down, dies down, my dad turns his attention to me, the moment I have been dreading. And I'm thinking quickly because I know if I say it was John, they'll know I was involved. If he says it was me, they'll know he was involved. And just about then, my two and a half year old brother, Kevin, waddles across the room and I have a brilliant idea. He's two and a half. I mean, he's a baby. He's not gonna get in trouble. My dad says, so tell me what happened. Well, daddy, it was Kevin. He was playing with the matches and I told him not to. I guess he must have dropped one and, and the fire started. I think this is a great idea until the next moment when for the first time in my life, my dad, this big burly bear of a man, takes off his belt, wraps it around his fist, leaving about a six inch tail, and begins to spank my little brother. And he's screaming, no daddy, it wasn't me, daddy, stop, stop, daddy, stop. And I am silent. I run to my room and throw myself on the bed, crying my heart out. And I cry for about three hours until finally the guilt is eating me alive. And I go to my father and say, Dad, it wasn't Kevin. It was John and me. And I wish my dad had taken off his belt a second time because what happened next was worse. He picked me up and put me on his knee. And he said, little girl, you let me spank your little brother for something he didn't do? I am so disappointed in you. At five years old, the last thing you want is for your dad to be disappointed in you. I confess and I decide that day because of my father's words, he said, right or wrong, you take responsibility for what you have done. I promised my brother my dessert for as long as he wants. And to this day, I think he's still cashing in on that. <laughs> what my dad taught me that day was you may not have started the fire, but you can still take responsibility for putting it out. That was Denise Banks-Grosedick. Originally from Louisiana, Denise is a speaker coach and personal development trainer who has lived in Berlin for more than three decades. Denise joined me in the studio to talk about how she sees mistakes as lessons rather than as failures. The moment you start to embrace the idea that this is an opportunity to learn something or when you look back at it and ask yourself, what was this here to teach me, then at that moment you gain power over that and it no longer feels like something that shouldn't have happened. And this isn't to say that there aren't situations where we think, wow, I, I would have liked to skip that lesson. Occasionally that'll happen. And at the same time, uh, when we let go of the idea that we have to, uh, that everything we do has to uh, come out the way we think that it will, 
uh, it, it frees us up to to learn a lot more and to just go through life with a lot less fear and a lot, yeah, a lot more ease, I think. This story that you told going back to when you were five years old, I mean, when in your life did you realize that this was a lesson rather than a mistake? I don't think there was a single moment looking back on that, I realized then that the moment, the lesson that I learned in that is something that has guided a lot of my life. You know, that the the idea that uh, what what my dad was trying to to teach me in that moment. Yeah, I, I think that that's something I recognized later. This is part of why I'm the way I am. And it struck me kind of in the lesson that your dad taught you, too, that it wasn't really the action itself. It wasn't setting the fire. It, it was how you handled it. How has that lesson been a compass for you? Yeah, it, it definitely was more about how how I handled it in the, the fact that I you know, didn't want to, to own up to what I had done. And the idea that because of that, someone else was hurt in the process. I've done many things where, where I think hmm, maybe you could have done that better or that would have been one of those lessons to to skip over, fast forward. And at the same time, I'm very willing to take responsibility for the things that, that I've done because of that lesson, because I know that if I don't take responsibility for my own actions, for the way that I show up in the world, someone will. Someone will have to. This summer, Denise started leading regular talks at her church, the American Church of Berlin. The series launched amid worldwide Black Lives Matter demonstrations following the deaths of several Black Americans at the hands of police officers in the United States. A little more than a month after the Bear event, I attended one of Denise's talks titled, How Did We Get Here? Discussing Systems of Race. Denise says these discussions are meant as fire starters, as a way for people to examine their own biases, to open up conversations with their friends, and to accept responsibility. Maybe you didn't start the fire, she says, but you can take responsibility for putting it out. Thank you for listening to this show about mistakes, produced by KCRW Berlin for the Goethe Institute in Washington, D.C., the stories you heard were told live on June 19th at the Bear Storytelling's Eve of the Champs event at Pfefferberg House 13. The Bear's founder is Diane Nyman, and she has hosted this live event now since 2015, after being inspired by The Moth. For more information about Goethe's Mistakes Project, head to goethe.de mistakes. In Berlin, Germany, I'm Sylvia Cunningham. <laughs>